All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so glad you could join us for our Sunday worship today. Uh, happy uh, belated Thanksgiving. Hope you all had a restful and hopefully uh, quality time with family this past week for Thanksgiving. And now we are full swing into the Californian winter. Again, I have friends from either like Chicago or East Coast. They always joke because we're all wearing our puffer jackets and they're in like shorts. Like this is a heat wave for them. But we are spoiled with nice weather here. And so hopefully you guys make it through this tough, tough 60 degree weather. Um, Always honored to share God's word. Uh, If you're new and visiting again, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff. I look forward to uh, resuming and returning to the theater next week for our normal worship. But again, obviously it works out today because we normally do our baptisms in here anyways. And so obviously looking forward to that. There's no better Sunday to know in a nutshell what a visual representation of the gospel is. So if you need a refresher, if you've never heard the gospel, you want to see it literally in real time, uh, today is a great Sunday to be here. And I, I look forward to baptisms all the time throughout the year. Uh, now, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we just finished a longer sermon series actually titled The Journey of Faith. And I hope that it was a helpful series, uh, especially for our context, for people who may feel stuck or you've been a Christian for a while, you're not really sure what it looks like to progress or grow or move forward. Uh, hopefully it gives you categories to understand like kind of what the journey of faith generally consists of and where you kind of are and what it might entail for you to continue to walk faithfully with the Lord in this season of your life. But today, obviously, we're going to be shifting gears and we're starting a, a new five-week sermon series on the short, not as familiar book of the prophet Malachi, which will lead us right into Christmas. And I am 99% sure many of you do not know what Malachi is, who Malachi is, or you don't do a devotional to Malachi. So the question naturally is, so why Malachi and why in light of Christmas? Very good question. I'm glad you asked. I had a lot of time to think through what might be appropriate to preach in this season. Uh, And I think it's actually very appropriate because Malachi, uh, it's the last book of the Old Testament. And this is significant because Malachi, therefore, is the last recorded interaction that God has with his people before Jesus enters the world, which is what Christmas is about, right? The birth of Jesus, almost 400 years later in the New Testament. So if you didn't know, and I'm going to have a lot of background information today, please bear with me. I want to just raise the biblical literacy of everyone who comes to our church. And so the Old Testament ends with Malachi and God speaking to his people. There's a 400 period where God just goes quiet. It's called the intertestamental period, the moment between the Testaments, and then Jesus shows up in the New Testament. So in a way, Malachi can be viewed as God's final message to his people in light of the coming of Christ. And as we all know, naturally, final messages carry more weight, right? The final word that you might give to maybe uh, your friend before they get married or a father might give to his son as he goes off to college or the final words of someone on their deathbed, final words just carry more weight. There's more gravity to them. And so Malachi carries a special type of weight and significance, which I want to help us see and unpack in these next five weeks heading into Christmas. So in light of that, if you have your Bibles, your programs, uh, uh, let's turn to Malachi chapter one. Our text today is verse one to five. We'll be reading from the ESV. And here at our church, we believe every time we open God's word, God speaks in his presence. Can we all rise together as we uh, take some time to read God's word? Again, Malachi chapter one. This is the reading of God's word. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. 
If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see it, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask this morning that your spirit move and speak through your word. I pray that it would be a message that is clear, helpful, relevant, and would once again remind us of the beauty and the glory of Christ and the gospel message. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So have you ever wondered, Christian or not, what it would be like to have a conversation with the living God? Like very literally, not just in your head or not just through like the religious practice of prayer, but as close to a legitimate, real back and forth conversation where God talks and you respond and he engages and you're literally talking with him. Right, imagine God showed up at your door one day, he knocked and he said, let's go grab some coffee. And for the next hour, you're literally just conversing with God. Now, for a lot of us, that seems like a weird concept because uh, typically, if you're like me, the way we imagine or picture God, it's more like God is this transcendent, almost mystical force, isn't he, right? That doesn't really think, feel, and engage in the way that we do as humans. But nothing could be further from the truth, especially when you read the book of Malachi. Malachi is a unique book among the prophets. No other prophets are kind of organized and structured the way Malachi is. And here's the interesting tidbit that really sets the tone for what Malachi is like. There are 55 verses in this book. It's not too long. And 47 of those verses are spoken in first person by God. That's fascinating. So for the majority of the book, it is literally God talking to his people. In other words, God literally engages and shares his thoughts and feelings regarding his relationship with his people who in the Old Testament were the Israelites, right? The nation of Israel. Now, conversations, as we all know, if you just enter a conversation, you need context. If two people are talking, you're going to naturally ask, like, hey, what are you guys talking about? Why are you guys talking about this? How did this conversation begin? And so like conversations require, we need some context to understand what is the nature of this conversation that God is having with his people. And not only that, every book of the Bible also requires context because even though it is one book in the Bible, the Bible is one unified book as well. And we really like to push that idea here at our church because a lot of us grew up in a context where we just kind of either take text and proof text, or we've been told like one verse and we think, oh, this is glorious verse without even understanding where it's coming from or what it means. So even the book of Malachi, it is not an isolated book, but it is tied to the grand narrative of scripture as a whole. So I want to take some time, especially because this is going to be a series, to set the scene and make sure we are all on the same page contextually for what Malachi is and what is going on in Malachi. So I'm going to spend some time to do that. And then we'll look at the text in verse 1 to 5, which I would argue establishes the foundation on how we are all to understand understand how does the living God of scripture relate to not only his people back then, but anyone who would choose to follow him today. So let's set the scene. Where does Malachi fit in the story of scripture? Uh, If somebody asked you, give me a two minute summary of the Old Testament, do it as best as you can and I'll give you a million dollars. That is what I told myself as I prepared this two-minute summary of the Old Testament, okay? And nothing would make me happier if sooner or later our church is interested. Just in the past time myself, we dream, like normal people dream of like, I want to, you know, have a lot of fun or I want to go on vacation. We dream of like, we want to teach the Old Testament survey. Like we're such pastors in that way, right? So nothing would make me happier than to share the story of scripture. But for the purpose of today, here's a concise summary and overview, Okay. 
So follow along with me, okay? So obviously, the story of Scripture begins with Genesis, the fall. There's creation, everything is good, Adam and Eve fall, and there are significant moments and characters where the narrative and stream of Scripture follows. You see, the next significant moment is when God approaches this man named Abram. And he goes to Abram, and he makes a covenant with Abram, and which is... Uh, let me explain what a covenant is because we don't use that language often. A covenant is this Old Testament ancient practice, which is similar to what we do today in a contract, but it's more than a contract. So a covenant, what it was, is it was a binding promise and commitment between two parties that would kind of de- determine what the nature of the relationship was. And it was as binding as a contract today, but it was as relational and personal as a personal promise. We don't really have too many things like our covenantal in nature today. Maybe a marriage is the closest thing. Because we understand even though marriage, it is a promise, it's more than a promise. You're literally almost in a way legally binded together, but it's more relational than a contract. So that is what the covenant is. And so we see God comes into the picture, approaches Abram and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to choose you and enter into this formal agreement and relationship where it's through you that the story of scripture is now going to continue. And he says, Abram, here's the promise I make to you. It's through you and your offspring that a nation is going to come out of that, which eventually is going to be the nation of Israel. And from that to even fast forward even more, Jesus is going to come from there. Okay. So that's what happens. So the nation of Israel comes, begins to grow, and we all know if you grew up in the church, they eventually become slaves in Egypt. And under Pharaoh, because they are slaves, I'm going to have this graphic up here just to do, it is the most simple graphic of the Old Testament. I literally found the most generic thing like a first grader could see. But God sends his first prophet named Moses. If you didn't know, Moses is the first prophet. He goes to Egypt talks to Pharaoh and says, deliver the people. This is what God says. And now the nation of Israel is no longer enslaved. They are freed. After they are delivered, they eventually enter the promised land that God had promised. They establish a kingdom. And this is where there's the glory days of Israel. Now, if you, again, if you've heard the Bible before, you've heard, you know, growing up, these are probably isolated incidents or, or events that you didn't know how they all connected. And that's what I'm doing for you. So they're delivered. They establish a kingdom in the promised land. And this is what I would call the glory days of Israel. Because they are in a monarchy under one of the best kings the nation has ever seen, King David. Good, glorious King David. This is the high point of Israel as a nation. And this is when the nation is thinking God's promises have been fulfilled. This is the good life. We are in the promised land. The temple is built. We are worshiping God. God is with us. It doesn't get any better than this. But sin finds a way. Corruption finds a way. And so eventually the kingdom implodes, collapses, and the Jews are now scattered. They are exiled. Israel is overrun. And this is where actually most of the prophetic books are now written. If you didn't know, where did the prophets come from? Why were they written? They are God's messages and messengers during the time when the Israel are scattered and they're on exile. And God is reminding them, I'm still with you. There's still hope. There's going to be a redemption and restoration. And he is talking with them. And they are in exile. And eventually, the promise comes true. Under the Persian Empire, the king says, Jews, you guys can go back to your land. You don't have to remain in exile. And fun little fact, at our church, we preach through a book called Ezra. That's exactly where Ezra and Nehemiah come in. Jews are slowly returning to their promised land. And as they are returning, this is where and when the book of Malachi takes place. This is the context. 
The people of Israel are returning to their land. They are in the process of rebuilding their roots and reestablishing themselves as a nation. And you would think, how exciting. They should be so happy to be back home. But the reality is they are actually discontent. They are disillusioned. And they are discouraged. Why? It is a classic case of what many of us come to know as expectations versus reality. Using a loose analogy, the people of Israel feel catfished by God in a way. Because they had all these great expectations and great promises they were holding on to that God said, you're going to be a mighty nation. You're going to be a glorious nation. You're literally going to be the pinnacle and center of the earth that everyone is going to look to and see the glory of God. And so they were probably thinking, ah, finally God's going to bring us back. He's going to restore us to the glory days like it was under King David. But the reality is when they return, Israel is not impressive at all. They are poor. They are militarily weak. They have no army to defend themselves. They are technically still under Persian rule, even though they've been allowed to come back home. And it is to this context of disillusionment and discouragement, God says, I have something to say. And he sends his prophet Malachi. He says, I want to talk to my people. And he delivers a very personal and intimate word to his people. Now, it's important to know, unlike the times maybe when they're in Egypt or, you know, after the Exodus where they're blatantly doing idol worship and openly rebellious to God, the context in this season is that they're actually on the outside. They're doing everything they should be doing as good Jews. They are seemingly obeying God. They're doing all the things that God calls them to do in the law. And yet you can't help but feel like there is this half-heartedness or a spiritual apathy in any way. And I'm sure this is a feeling that is very familiar for a lot of us in our journey of faith, is it not? Some of you guys feel catfished by God. You hear God make great promises, and you're sold this grand vision that all things in your life are going to be for glory. They're going to work for your good. Following Jesus, it is going to be the best decision you can ever make. It's going to lead to a full life. And yet you look at your life and your reality and it doesn't feel glorious. It doesn't feel great. Your bank account is struggling. Your careers aren't going the way you want. You're getting laid off. Your relationships are struggling. Your marriage, which you thought was just going to be the answer, is actually the most difficult thing for you in your season. Others of you, you thought you would be married and you're not married yet. And you almost wonder, like, what's the point? What is the point of following God? If my life looks no different or potentially even worse than my non-Christian peers next to me. But here's the thing. Like the Israelites back then, you still do the Christian thing though. You still go to church. You still half-heartedly participate in religious routines and practices. But here's the kicker. Your heart is not in it. And you know it's not in it. Some of you sitting here in this room. If I really pressed you and said, why are you here? It'd be the same as asking a robot who does what it's programmed to do. I, I, that's, that's what I do. But your heart is, after worship, what you're going to do? Where are you going to go eat? What you're going to do this week? Your heart is not here with the living God because you're disillusioned. If you can relate to this, God has something to say to you through the book of Malachi. And again, it's especially relevant this Christmas season because this is the last time God speaks before Jesus enters the picture. Now, it's helpful to know the way the book of Malachi is organized before we turn to our text. Again, it is unique. It is a conversation. And there are six topics that God addresses in conversation with his people. Obviously, we can't go over all six because it's a 
five-week series. But even still, the way every week is going to be is essentially God begins and initiates the conversation with a statement. The people then respond with a question to God's statement. And then God responds ultimately to their question. And it is a fascinating book. If you want like a bird's eye, not bird's eye, a first-person intimate view of what's going on in God's heart and mind regarding the state of his people, not just back then, but I would argue today because there's so many similarities, this is the book to look at. So let's take off our brief seminary hats. You are now experts in Malachi now. And let's get to our text, see how God begins the conversation. And the first words that come out of God's mouth. Verse 1, the oracle, which translates burden. So you got to imagine, God has this burden that he wants to share with his people. It's something that he's looking forward to engaging with them for. And he tells Malachi, hey, tell them this is from me. Verse 2, first thing that comes out of his mouth, I have loved you, says the Lord. There is a a well-known psychologist and researcher. His name is Dr. John Gottman. He's kind of like the renowned guy, especially when it comes to like marriage health and how relationships thrive and, you know, like some patterns that lead to marriages ending in divorce. And literally one of the main focuses of his work is determining what causes relational stability versus hostility. And one of the things his research shows is there is actually a very research-calculated, consistent predictor for the health of a relationship. And he says, the way I can do that, just let me see a couple or close people have a conversation for three minutes. That's it. I only need three minutes to see how they talk to each other, what they say to each other, and I'll know right away, is this going to be healthy or is this leading towards separation? And I'm sure many of us know by experience, when you really think about it, The way a conversation starts, doesn't it pretty much set the tone for how the rest of the conversation will go? For example, if you're married and the first thing your spouse comes to you with is an accusation or a criticism, don't your guards come up and be like, okay, that's the type of convo it's going to be, or vice versa. If you go in with that first, you're going in for war. And on the contrary, if you begin your conversation with what Gottman calls a soft startup, which is I'm not here to fight you, let me actually create a conversation. Let me ground this in something more than I'm here to attack you. He says it contributes to a feeling of security and stability where it kind of loosens the guard and you can actually have a conversation. We're going to find out in the coming weeks, God has a lot to say to his people. And it's not all fun stuff. But today we see, even though he has a lot to say, the first thing he wants to say, it's not an accusation, it's not a correction, it's not a rebuke. It is a reminder and affirmation of his love. And this is not a sporadic, I love you now, I might not love you later. The word love in Hebrew is in the perfect tense, which literally translates, he has loved, he loves continually, and he will continue to love forever. It is an unconditional, unchanging love that the Bible calls covenantal, like I mentioned, love earlier. And we're going to learn about that in the next few verses. Now, I want to just really highlight, we need to really grasp that biblical covenantal love from God, it's not like any love we have in this world, right? We live in a control Z generation where you can undo almost anything, right? People get married, but they say, just in case we don't stay together, let's, let's just be in case, you know? We're almost kind of geared up to have commitment, not follow through. So when we hear stuff like, I love you, we're kind of like, well, until when? Are you really sure you do? 
And that's where we have to understand, like, there are parts in the world where it's not like that. I remember hearing this interesting thing in, in the Uganda, it's kind of random, I know, in the Ugandan court of law, one of the things they take very seriously is the death sentence. And the way they take it seriously is once the judge determines that someone is guilty of the death sentence, the way they practice that this can never be undone is the judge will take a piece of paper, he will sign it saying this decision is made, and what he does is he breaks the pen saying this can never be undone. Signed, sealed, delivered, finished. We have to understand that is the type of finality that God is saying. He's like, when I love you, I break the pen. (laughs) There is no control Z. It is done. Now, I want to share a quick word here because I think it's relevant not just for me, but for a lot of us, especially who may have grown up in a more Asian culture and context. One of the most formative things that we may not even be aware of in our lives is the string of first words that you probably heard growing up, or rather maybe you didn't hear growing up. For example, literally think back. When you make a mistake or made a mistake, or you did something bad or wrong, what was the typical first response you received? I'm willing to bet for a lot of us, it wasn't a reminder of affection or affirmation. It was probably an immediate correction, wasn't it? Something like, don't do that, or so, some form of a threat. Like, if you keep doing that, I'm going to throw your toes away. I don't know where that line came from, but all parents use that, right? You keep doing that, I'm going to throw your toys away. And the kids call our bluff because we're not going to throw their toys away. It's so expensive, right? But we'll always, you know, play that game. Now, I get it as a parent myself. It's so hard to not want to just immediately correct your child. And imagine God, right? His people are faithless. They are disobedient. They are the most rebellious of children ever. He probably is like, oh, I got so many things to correct and want to say to you. But he does something that I'm trying to practice now, which one pastor puts it this way. I think it's so helpful. He says, you want to, you want to help your child? You want to connect with them? You need to do something. Before you ever want to correct them, you need to connect with them. And he calls it, you need to connect before you correct. You need to connect before you correct. For a lot of us, that order was flipped or it didn't even exist. We were corrected either if we wanted connection or we were simply just corrected. This is something I'm trying to implement more and more. My first son, Ezra, just turned three yesterday. And he's definitely entering into a season of being a three-nager. He's more rebellious. He's more defiant. Uh, sometimes he'll be, you know, not the best older brother to his uh, younger brother, Zach. And so one thing I'm trying to do, although imperfectly, is I'm trying to practice this. So when he does something wrong or disobeys me, oh, I get so angry. But I say, you know, connect before you correct. Connect before you correct. So I'll take him to the side, and I'll look him in the eye, and I'll say, Ezra, you know, Appa loves you. And then I get emotional for some reason. I'm like, I've never experienced this before. This is a really weird feeling. But I kid you not, even as a three-year-old, something changes about the nature of the conversation. You know, kids know when they're in the wrong. They're aware very early on. And they are sinful. We all are. You even know when you're in the wrong. And yet when you are met, not with immediate correction, but this connection of you, I am grounding what I'm about to say to you in my love for you. Not your performance, not your obedience, but I'm your father and you are my child. That's what God's doing here. God's first word grounds his entire relationship with his people in his unconditional love. And I would argue biblically and practically Everything in the Christian faith hinges on the fact and truth that God loves his people deeply. 
And it's not enough to just hear it or think about it. You need to really believe that because it is only out of the infinite, unending soil of God's unending love that true Christian fruit grows. Genuine Christian fruit. The problem is a lot of us ground and plant the seed of faith in other grounds because we don't believe in God's love. If you plant the seed of faith in any other ground outside of God's unending love for you, you're going to have problems in your faith. And some of us have problems as a result of that. For example, some of us ground the seed of our faith in the ground of our feelings. Shaky ground. Others of us ground our faith in our religiosity and moral behavior and being a good person. Shaky ground. Obviously, more could be said there, but whatever the case is, the God's first word to his people is simple yet profound. It is, I have loved you. Now, let's see how Israel responds. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, obviously, this, this response is very sarcastic in nature. It's almost like they're scoffing. God is saying, I love you, my people. And they're saying, like, okay, like, okay, how do you love us, God? Now, before we judge them, let's see why they might be responding that way. Remember, as far as they know, they're doing everything they're supposed to do as good Jews. They are following the religious laws. They are following God as best they can. And yet, here's their reality. They are still poor. They are still weak. They are still under uh, Persian rule. And in that context of this disillusionment between what they expect and what's going on, God is saying, like, hey, I love you. They're probably thinking, this is love? How is this loving? Like, if you really loved us, hello, like, do you not see this situation? And all of us can relate to this. All of us can relate to this. God says, I love you. And you think and you feel, whoa, God, hold up. If you really loved me, then blink. It's not hard to fill in that blank. If you really loved me, why do I only have one parent? If you really loved me, why am I unemployed? Why is my job so hard? If you really love me, God, why is some of the closest relationships I have to me, why are they sick? Why, are they, why do they have cancer? Why have you taken them away from me so early? If you really love me, how come I can't enter into a family or start a family in the way that I want? God, aren't these good things? Aren't these loving things that you would give to somebody you love? And the list goes on. And just know each circumstance is genuinely difficult, genuinely understandable to feel and respond that way. And I get the Israelites. I'll feel that way too. Like, God, you say we're your chosen people. We are the weakest nation among all. Like, what's going on here? And this is where we need to look at the questions we ask. Because you realize the questions you ask reveal a lot about what's going on in your heart. So we have to be sober-minded enough to include that embedded within these questions is the underlying belief that we know what true love is, and therefore, by extension, what true love ought to look like in our lives. So let me boil it down very simply. A lot of us judge God's love based on how we feel and how we perceive our circumstances in life to be going. So we feel good and we think things are going well. We think, oh, God loves me so much. But something tough happens. You go through a struggle. You think, why doesn't God love me? Pastorally, it is as simple as that. I've never had someone, you know, struggle with God's love when they got a job promotion. Oh, my God loves me. Why? Dude, I just got a raise. I've never had someone say, oh, my God, I experienced the love of God so much because I got fired. This just shows you. It's the idol of our age. 
circumstances dictate our perception of God's love. If I can just say a quick pastoral word, whatever it is you're going through, if you're a Christian here today, it's not because God doesn't love you. Can I remind you of that? It's not because God doesn't care. So let's see how God responds. And let me caveat at first glance, it is one of the most puzzling and perplexing responses that you can ever have. It almost made me want to just like, forget Malachi. I don't want to preach this. Like, it's so confusing, right? So it's like, how have you loved us? And we have to dig through the initial confusion to get to what I believe is one of the richest, most profound doctrines we can really anchor ourselves in. Because you know what an anchor is? An anchor means it has to be strong enough. It has to be ground enough to actually hold you in place when the storms of life come. And the storms of life are pretty hard, amen? I know some of the ones you guys are going through. So your anchor has to be stronger, or else you will go to and fro. So God says, I have loved you. People say, how have you loved them? And God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother? This is a, uh, if you know the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 9. This is a classic Enneagram 9 move. When you're about to enter uncomfortable conversation, you change the topic. That is what I do. And many of us here do it, right? Hey, we got to talk about this. What do you want to eat? Like, what the? That's not what God is doing here. We have to give the benefit of the doubt. God is willing to engage. He's the one who started the conversation. So we have to see, like, why Jacob and Esau? Well, let's talk about this a little bit. Jacob and Esau, if you don't know the story, literally twin brothers from the moment they are born. They are two sons who come from the line of Abraham, which we talked about earlier. And so there is this dilemma in the story of Scripture. There is this single line that God is supposed to do his covenant promise through, but there's two sons. You can't have two lines. So is it going to be Esau or Jacob that the promise of God is going to go through? Culturally, everybody knows the answer. There should be no confusion. 100% Esau. He is the firstborn, even though it's just by a couple minutes. By law, by custom, and by birthright, Esau is the clear chosen son that should bring about God's covenant promises. And yet God clearly says, I've loved Jacob. I choose Jacob. And not only that, he says, and Esau I have hated. That's very harsh language. People don't like that. It's like, like it's, I get that you love Jacob, but why you got to hate Esau, right? That's very strong language. Now, we have to understand contextually. God is, again, he's using covenantal language. So a more accurate translation to help us grasp this is, I have chosen Jacob in covenant love, and therefore, by default, I have not chosen Esau. That is what's going on here. And so since God chose Jacob in covenant, he loves him. And since God has rejected Esau by default, he's not saying hatred and animosity. He's saying hatred by default of rejection. Okay, that's what's going on there. At the same time, it's not enough to just say it's purely about covenantal language because I think there's more going on here. There's actually other places in scripture where God uses the language of hatred, not so much to highlight hatred, but to highlight the extent of love. Look at Luke 14, 26. It should be up there. Jesus says something very interesting here. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Sounds like he's saying, hate your family. But obviously we know that's not what he's talking about. Jesus himself would have disobeyed this then. Why? Jesus loved his earthly family. Not that many people know. One of his greatest priorities hanging on the cross as he was dying was to make sure his earthly mother was taken care of. So he clearly loved his family. So he's not saying to hate your family here. So in other words, the point here is not to highlight hatred. It's to highlight that the extensive committed love is so vast and so great that everything else literally looks and feels like hatred. That's what's going on here. 
And God is saying, that is how much love I have had. So Israel says, how have you loved us? God responds by saying, I have loved covenantally and deeply and profoundly Jacob, your ancestor. And it's not just this formality, like a loveless arranged marriage, but almost like every other thing seems like hatred because I have chosen to love you in this way. Now here's the million dollar question. Why did God choose to love Jacob and not Esau? If you can answer that, uh, you should be a seminary professor. Why did God choose to love Israel and show them mercy while sending judgment to Esau's descendants, the Edomites, as our text says, right? Because that's what the text is saying. The Edomites were wicked and God just judged them, but he didn't do that to Israel. And here's the deepest question that I would want us to consider, and I hope even our brothers uh, Jason and Sam can consider as they come up here to get baptized. Why, if you are a Christian here today, why in the world did God choose to love you? How come you get to sit here in this room and hear the preaching of God's word when your neighbor can't? Why? Now, we live in a generation that intensely values the why question. Our parents' generation, suffering comes. They don't ask why. They're just like, I guess this is life. For us, something bad happens. Why? Why is this happening? Why is it going like this? Give me an explanation. Why? Because we are looking for an explanation we can wrap our head around. And so we might be thinking, well, is it because Jacob was 51% more obedient? Was he a better son? Was Esau just that wicked? And the Bible is crystal clear. They're both bad options. It's not like one was better than the other. They were both wicked in their own ways. Neither had some sort of upstanding character that gives them the edge over the other. So then why? Why Jacob and not Esau? And what we need to know is the Bible is actually very clear on why. But you might not like the why. You see, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, again, the Bible is a unified book. The Apostle Paul references this very text in Malachi in his letter to the Romans. And he colors it in and he answers the question. And he's not unclear. And to caveat, we're about to enter into what I would consider a little meteor doctrinal territory. And I was wrestling like, man, should I even preach this? Like, is this helpful to people? But then I was reminded, Malachi didn't write to seminarians. Malachi didn't write to theologians or pastors. He wrote to just everyday Christians. And he's getting into these meaty things. So I was like, well, Malachi did it. I guess I got to do it too. So Romans chapter 9 should be up there. This is Paul's commentary on what I just read. And he says, and not only that, but Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother, conceived children through one man, our father Isaac, Abraham's son. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Right? We just read that in Malachi. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will show compassion. So then, it does not depend on human or effort, but on God who shows mercy. On a human level, this is a very, very uncomfortable text. It triggers almost every sense of what values this world has in this day. But here's what Paul is saying. He looks at Malachi and his commentary basically to the why question and answers this. God chose to love Jacob because he chose to love Jacob. And that is his right and prerogative in his sovereignty to do so. It had nothing to do with Jacob. Why? Because he chose him before he was born. 
There is nothing good or bad he could have even done. In other words, his actions are not even a part of the equation. Now again, election, sovereignty, it's not the simplest of topics. It might raise more questions. And just know I welcome the questions. <laughs> I would love to engage in these questions. I'm more concerned that nobody has questions, right? Typically, in our day and age, it's like, cool. Right? People are just like, all right, I'll take your word for it. But nothing will make me happier to dig into the meat of that. But doctrine aside, the most natural thought you might be feeling when you hear this is that seems so unfair. God seems so unfair. And I 100% agree with you depending on what you're referring to. You see, we live in a culture of entitlement. It's the air we breathe. And what this means is we intrinsically believe we deserve to be treated well. And I've noticed in my own Christian life and the lives of a lot of Christians in our context, we bleed this entitlement in the way that we treat God's love towards us. Though we will never say it, functionally the way that we view the gospel, if we're honest with ourselves, is that because of Jesus... God has to love me. God has to forgive me. It's almost like we're like, ha ha, God. Remember what I learned at VBS? Remember what I learned at church? You have to love me because of Jesus. I'm entitled to it. You know how this shows up? That's your attitudes towards God's love, this cavalier, entitled, prideful mentality. You know how hard it is then to be moved by the idea that God loves you? You know how hard it is for you to be humbled enough to want to worship on a Sunday? You have absolutely no internal motivation because you think, I'm entitled to it. Even if I'm gone six months, when I come back, I'm entitled to, to be accepted by God again. Now, it's not wrong, but it's so not right either. And can I remind us, the message of Malachi, the message of Romans, the message of the entire Bible strikes a very different tone than this entitled tone that a lot of us breathe in. You see, the most unfair thing in our text today is not that God didn't choose Esau or that God judged Edom because Edom, as scripture will tell you, it was a wicked, it was a sinful generation, it was a sinful nation. And so God judged them rightfully so and it was fair. That's the definition of justice. The unfair thing in today's text is that Jacob and by extension Israel, who arguably was just as bad, if not worse, did not receive fair judgment. That is unfair. And this is an adjective I'd like to add just to really push the point. Grace is so unfair. It is so unfair. God's decision to make a covenant with his people back then and to love them and choose them unconditionally was extremely unfair. God's decision to be in covenant with us today in Christ, it is extremely unfair. And just so we don't think that it came at no cost, back then they're probably thinking like, well, how have you loved us, God? Well, today God could give you a very clear response how he's loved us. It's not through an explanation. It's through a person. Romans 5.8. How have you loved us, God? But God shows, demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still the worst of sinners, Christ died for us. When you were at your most unlovable, that's when God said, this is the perfect time that I can answer that question. How have you loved us? This is how. You see, if a convicted, guilty criminal goes to prison, friends, that's fair. That's literally justice. <laughs> that's what we cry out for until it's us, right? If it's us, it's like, hey, 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 grace. But everything else, no, no, justice, justice, justice. 
But if a guilty criminal receives pardon at the expense and life out of an innocent man, that is extremely unfair. And the entire narrative of scripture is predicated on an unfair message of mercy and grace. It is unfair that you get to have access to God's presence so freely, to be able to worship him as your father, to be able to call him your father. It is unfair that God has opened your heart to hear the gospel and grasp it, but not your friends, not your neighbor, not those people overseas. And what this unfairness of God's grace should produce in our hearts, it is the distinctly Christian fruit of humility. For a Christian who truly gets it, how could you possibly boast as if you bring something to the table. The greatest mystery that will drive our worship for all eternity is why, why, why did God choose to love me? Why me and not them? Why me and not her? Why me and not him? Why should I gain from Christ's reward? And that's the story of scripture. Now, why is this good news? This is good news because if God loves you because of you, you are on shaky ground. The older you get, it's not like, oh, I'm such a good person. Isn't it not true? I thought I was a decent person and I got married. I'm like, I'm a terrible person. And then I became a father. I'm like, I'm an even more terrible person. And tell me, it's a track record of life. The older you get, the more you're like, oh, what a saint I am. Isn't it not like, I didn't know I was jacked up. I didn't know how angry I could be. I didn't know how sinful I can be. And so if the beginning of your relationship with God is like, oh, you're so lovable. That's why I love you. Oh man, your whole life is going to be shaky and insecure. Why? Because your lovability meter goes down and down and down and down. So why is the gospel good news? Because God does not love you because of you. He loves you in spite of you. And that is good news for us. It's not about our merits, but based on God's grace and choosing. And this means if it's by God's choosing, even the vilest of sinners have hope in God's grace. Even if you committed the most heinous of acts last night, you can experience God's grace. Even the most broken have room to experience God's grace because the darkest mistakes and most shameful acts have nothing to do with God's grace working in our life. And that is God's first word to Malachi. That his love is deeper than your circumstance. It is greater than your feelings, than your doubts. And it is eternally ruined, pen broken in the blood-bought sacrificial covenant that was affirmed and confirmed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so no matter what you might be experiencing in this season, just know one thing that will never change, that in Christ, you're loved and you're secure. Let's pray.